Let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to John chapter 3. First through third graders, you can slip out to our children's church at this time if you would like. The rest of of us are turning to John chapter 3. Our text for the morning begins down in verse 9 and we'll go down through verse 15. We'll begin reading in verse 1 to kind of pick up the context and remind ourselves where we are. John chapter 3 has been called the most important chapter in the Gospels regarding the topic of salvation. It's a high statement, but I think I agree with that. Because as you look through this chapter, Jesus, in his own words, is unfolding for us what it means to be reconciled to the Father. John chapter 3 is not a how-to handbook on salvation, As if I can say, listen, this is how you do it. But it's a a book, it's a chapter that describes how God accomplishes the work of salvation in someone's heart. Let's begin reading in verse 1. We'll read down through verse 15. Now there was therefore a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. A ruler of the Jews, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or from where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit." Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we've seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, namely... The Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Heavenly Father, as we look into your word, would you please grant sight that we may see? If there's one here that is unsaved, would you? Turn their heart of stone into a heart of flesh. Would you breathe life into their soul that they may believe and place their faith and trust in you alone for salvation? Would you help us to understand your word and thus understand your character? In your name we pray. Amen. We've been going through chapter 3 very, very slowly. Because as Jesus is unfolding to Nicodemus 
through the pen of John, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, for even for our benefit as we read this morning, as he is unfolding these concepts of regeneration and conversion, it's very important for us to put on the brakes and to understand accurately not only what the text says, but what the text is teaching us. We want to ask the question, why is Jesus phrasing it this way for Nicodemus? What is Nicodemus hearing here in this cultural context? What is this passage teaching us? And so we've slowed way down and we've been recognizing how Jesus outlines the concepts of regeneration and conversion, that one act of salvation, and unfolding these concepts for Nicodemus. As we look through this passage this morning, verses 9 through 11, I'd like to to give you three words that are going to act like a roadmap for us to get through this text. Uh, hopefully you can remember them. They're, they're given to us right here in the text. The first one is perceive. The second is receive. And the third is believe. And that's what Jesus is unfolding for Nicodemus in this text. You need to understand what salvation is. You need to accept this truth and then you need to believe it. Or the three concepts that that Jesus walks through. So we'll say them in a little more of a memorable way. Re- perceive, receive, and believe. And I'd like to show you this morning by tracing through this passage and seeing those three key concepts that man's, though it is we saw earlier, man's greatest need, John the Baptist reveals to us, is to be reconciled with the Father. What I'd like to show you this morning in this passage is that man's greatest responsibility is that he would understand accept and believe the truth that's man's greatest responsibility to understand accept and believe the truth you could shorten that and just say this it is your responsibility to believe the scripture as God has revealed it repent and believe the gospel if you want to shorten it to Jesus's words his first message walking the sea of Galilee that you must believe The truth. And we know based on the first half of John chapter 3 that none of this is possible without the work of the Holy Spirit, but that does not remove the responsibility of every person to believe the truth, to turn and to look to Jesus for salvation. As we look at this with a, with a broad biblical view, we understand that these two concepts in Scripture are called the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. And often these are referred to as tensions, but friends, I have a feeling that when we get to heaven, they're not going to be tensions at all. They're going to be fully complementary, even though they're a mystery here on this earth. That salvation is all of God, and yet each person is held responsible to place their faith in Christ. John is presenting us a picture in verses 9 through 11 of belief and unbelief. And so let's look there together. The first word I'd like to show you is the word perceive. We see that reflected in verse 9 in Jesus' word understand. That's worth the, it, Technically we could use the word understand and maybe we should because it's the word that Jesus uses here to comprehend, to understand. But to make it more, more memorable maybe for you to walk away with and understand it as you think about the gospel, we'll use the word perceive perceive let's look at Nicodemus's question in verse 9 Nicodemus said to him 
How can these things be? What are these things that Nicodemus is referring to? Jesus, one of the reasons why we went back to verse 1 and to read, is because Jesus is unfolding these concepts that though they are large concepts, act as the very foundation of what it means to be a Christian. Without these concepts, you can't move forward. If you're playing basketball, we would first teach you how to dribble, right? Before trying to help you understand what good shooting form looks like and how to do a layup with your offhand, if we're going to play basketball first, we have to first recognize that if you don't know how to dribble, you can't move more than one step, right? And so you first have to learn the very basics of dribbling and how you dribble and how the hand works and on and on and on. And what Jesus is dealing with is the very basic basics of the Christian life. How salvation is accomplished. And Nicodemus looks at Jesus after Jesus says, listen, you think you're a part of the kingdom of God, Nicodemus, because you're a Jew. Without being born again, you can't even see the kingdom of God. Well, how does being born again happen? Well, it's accomplished by the Holy Spirit. And, and it's a mystery. It's like the wind. We don't understand how it happens or when it happens or why it happens, but we know that it's accomplished by God. And the Holy Spirit breathes life into the soul to regenerate, to be born from above, to be born again. And Nicodemus, astounded and perplexed, says, how can these things be? Even though he's intricately familiar with the Old Testament, what water and spirit means, he still does not understand that the message of salvation is by faith because his eyes have not been opened by the Holy Spirit and were reminded Simply being familiar with the Bible or growing up with the truth of Scripture does not guarantee that you're a believer, my friend. Just because you've been to church your whole life or just because you've memorized Bible verses or just because you own a Bible does not guarantee that you've been born again. Nicodemus was the teacher of the Jews, knew the Old Testament backwards and forwards, and yet he gives the typical response of an unsaved person, I don't understand all of this. What are you even talking about for those of you who witness often you know that this is a response that you get most often when you explain that we have a problem our problem is called sin god didn't create us that way we adam chose to sin that's been passed down to all of us just like your attributes have been passed down from your parents so our sin nature was passed down from adam god is the only solution and if you would like your sin to be forgiven you must turn to jesus in faith and people will look at you and say what in the world are you talking about A person whose eyes have not been opened to understand by the Holy Spirit responds this same way. And so Nicodemus looks at Jesus and says, how can these things be? Even though he doesn't understand, he's not without excuse. He has the Bible. He has general revelation all around him. Romans chapter 1, what can be known about God is plain to them because he's shown it to them. Verse 20, his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Friends, you look around you and the only possible explanation is that there has to be a God. Any other explanation is an excuse to try to get rid of the authority that that statement that God exists exerts on that life. There must be a God. General revelation reveals that to us. 
Jesus explains the new birth only comes through the power of the Holy Spirit. Nicodemus doesn't understand, so let's look at Jesus' answer as Nicodemus is astonished and taken back with these statements. And and again, it's hard to explain how earth-shattering these concepts are to the head Pharisee here. I mean, this is... It's hard for us to recognize how, how much Nicodemus' world is being rocked here. Jesus answers that he's not trying to explain some sort of deep theological mystery, but just the foundational truth of Christianity. Look with me in your Bibles at verse 10. Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? This is basic. You made it all the way to college, to a Division I basketball school, and you don't even know how to dribble, right? You don't know these things? Nicodemus was so entrenched and blinded by his pharisaical background that he could not understand what Jesus was saying. He hasn't even gotten to the level of belief yet. And this is what we have to recognize is that we go, we have to go in order here. You can't believe something that you don't accept as true and you can't accept something as true that you don't even understand. And Nicodemus is at a point of not even comprehending, not even understanding what Jesus is saying here. So we need to ask the question. We need to ask this question. I think this is worth asking. I think it's a good question. And I think you should be asking this question. So if you aren't already, you will be as soon as I say it. Okay? Here's the question. Why was Nicodemus struggling to understand this? I think that's a good question to ask. Other than the darkness of his heart and the spiritual blindness of his eyes, which are very important, okay? Other than the Holy Spirit working in his life, what is it that is so hard for Nicodemus to understand. You could ask it this way. What cultural or religious barriers stood in the way of Nicodemus understanding this truth? This is a good question. As I'm talking to someone, what cultural and religious barriers are up that I need to address in order for this person to even understand what I'm talking about? Now make no mistake, the gospel does not change. The truth presented in scripture does not change. However, the packaging and the presentation of that truth should be adjusted according to what context you are dealing with. For instance, maybe this needs to be done more often, but if I stand from the pulpit and I share the truth of the gospel as I do, hopefully in some way every Sunday, I don't start always with the foundation of there is a God who exists. And yet, sitting in a service in Guyana, South America, on the the shores of Lake Kapui, having a service there among people who had never been reached with the gospel, who did not know anything about the Bible, nor did they know anything about Jesus, that is how the gospel must be presented. There is a God. For some people, in the midst of a gospel presentation, they'll need to be convinced that they're a sinner at all. For others, they'll need to understand that God is loving enough and merciful enough to forgive the immensity and the depth of the sin that they already recognize. For some, an an emphasis needs to be that God is one essence and there is only one true God if you're dealing with a Hindu. 
I am God, there is no other. For others, the emphasis may need to be on God's character, that he is three persons in one essence, that he may be eternally a loving father, son, and spirit, and eternal communion. If you're witnessing to a Muslim, that Allah and Yahweh are not the same person. For our relativistic culture in America today, one of the greatest hindrances to understanding the truth is that Jesus is the only way to heaven. If you witness, you know that you have heard people say, well, I'm glad that's right for you. That there is a barrier that is up in our culture today of relativism that people will be excited for you to share the truth that you believe as long as you don't tell them that they need to believe it as well. So which one of these was Nicodemus struggling with here? We could go on and on and on. Which one of these was Nicodemus struggling with? Nicodemus had a barrier and a wall up that he needed to understand that even though he was part of God's chosen nation, that he was a Jew and an Israelite, he was still outside of the kingdom of God. That even though he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees, even though he was the teacher of the Jews, he needed a light bulb to go off that he was still outside of God's kingdom. Today, maybe a light bulb that even though you're a member of a church, you might not be saved. That even though you've prayed a prayer or made a profession of faith, you might not be a genuine believer. That Nicodemus had this light bulb that needed to go off in his mind that even though he was a Jew and the teacher of the Jews, he needed to understand that he was outside the kingdom of God in order to ever get entrance into the kingdom of God. That is the understanding, that is the barrier that is keeping Nicodemus. I'm a Jew, of course I'm part of the kingdom of God. Whoa, whoa, whoa. It's like living down south where everyone's a Christian. That's why I would, I would highly encourage you never to ask the question, are you a Christian? Because that can mean so many things. It, in, in a sense of witnessing, if you're trying to understand where someone stands with their soul and whether or not Jesus is their Lord and Savior according to biblical terms, then, then, then we need to come up with another question like, what are your, hey, what are your spiritual beliefs? Or do you have any spiritual beliefs and leanings? Nicodemus needed to perceive the truth that even though he was part of the nation of Israel, he was outside of the kingdom of God. Secondly, Nicodemus needed to receive that truth. To perceive means to understand the facts, to comprehend. It's like that moment where maybe you're at work and you're going through some sort of new in-service where for some reason they've changed up the operating system and the equipment that you work on or maybe they've changed their policies and you're sitting in a meeting and you're not happy to be there and you're even trying to understand what's going on and then all of a sudden you go, oh, okay, I get it. Even though you may still disagree whether or not that's the best way to do it, now at least you understand what they're talking about. And that's that word perceive, to understand, to have that light bulb go off off that you now comprehend what's being said but that's not enough friends for salvation and so Jesus secondly goes to receiving and that is to take those facts and to accept them as the truth receive perceive and then receive look at verse 11 let's look down at our Bibles together verse 11 
we see the third of these amen, amen statements, truly, truly statements. I say to you, verse 11, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. Very important here. I'd like you to, if you have your Bible journals with you, or you write in your Bible, I want you to take a pencil, I want you to circle the, the word we, circle the word you, and on top of them, somehow notate whether you write a plus or a PL or something. Note that both of those are plural, and that's very important to understand. That Jesus is aligning himself with John the Baptist. He's aligning himself with his disciples who are speaking the truth. He's aligning himself with all of the prophets of the Old Testament who have also given this same message. Ezekiel chapter 36 God will give you a new heart. He will turn your heart of stone into a heart of flesh, born of water and the Spirit over and over and over again. Jesus is saying, this is the testimony of Scripture, but you, that word you is plural as well. Jesus is not just referencing Nicodemus individually. He's referencing all of the Jews who will reject him, led by the Pharisees. The nation as a whole later on will chant, crucify him, crucify him. That we have given you this message and you, or if you're from the south, y'all, you all are rejecting. You are not receiving this truth. Some of you may understand, some of you may not, but as a whole, you are rejecting We could reword verse 11 to say the following. Those of us who are speaking the truth are bearing witness to both what we know the scriptures clearly says and what we've seen in the person of Christ and God opening our eyes. But you and your Pharisees and the Jewish nation refuse to accept this testimony as the truth. You may understand it, but you reject it. The issue that Jesus is bringing to light in verse 11 is the issue of authority. When truths or, some, or what you perceive to be truths go against each other when they contrast, who do you believe? Who do you side with? We see this happen all of the time in our homes. He hit me. No, I didn't. Hmm. Only one of them is true, right? What's the best way to do this? Well, this is the best way. No, I like this way. Chick-fil-A or Zaxby's. Or or I guess we would say Chick-fil-A or, you know, Raisin Cane's. You may have a perceived truth on that. And if it's because Chick-fil-A is Christian, just take that off the table. Let's just deal with the food, okay? When, when perceived truths collide, one will win, and whatever wins is your ultimate authority. And what Jesus is saying here is that the truth that is revealed from Jesus and the prophets and the testimony of the Old Testament is colliding, it's on a collision course with the Jewish nation, and who's going to win out? Are you going to trust the traditions? Are you going to trust what people are telling you and say, don't worry about the Bible? Are you going to trust things that are taken out of context or reinterpreted? Or will you just trust what the Bible says? It's an issue of authority. And the responsibility of the believer is to give the message of the gospel and to leverage 
the life of Scripture to leverage the power of the Word of God on the conscience of the unsaved person and, that, and let that person be taken to a point of choosing which authority they're going to align under. That is why the atheist says God cannot exist because if he does, then that assumes he has authority over my life. And so you have to choose which authority you align your heart under. Nicodemus needed to understand what Jesus was saying and he needed to accept as the ultimate authority what Jesus was saying. Jesus is making a case here in verse 12 that we'll get to here in a minute. He's making a case that he is the only ultimate authority here. He was calling Nicodemus to perceive the truth, to comprehend, to understand what he's saying. He's calling him to receive the truth, to recognize its genuineness and authority. And friends, we struggle with the same thing. I mean, how many times have you heard the Bible read or heard the Bible preached, and there's something in you, which happens to be the Holy Spirit, which is resonating with that truth, and yet you know what what it means in your life if you actually accept that truth for you, and you go, oh, surely there's another option, right? Surely there's, there's another way we can get around this. I mean, I, I, I know what you're saying is true, but, but is, is there another way? Because if what you're saying is true, that means that my heart has to be realigned under the authority of God. And that's painful sometimes, isn't it? Because that means that over the past year or two years or five years or 10 years or 50 years, I may have gotten something a little bit wrong. And now I have to switch my belief system as I get to know the Bible better, as I get to know God in a deeper way, and I have to continually accept him as the ultimate authority. I mean, you can imagine Nicodemus is being told, an expert in the Old Testament, that he got it all wrong. He's sitting here and Jesus is saying, you have to accept my authority and the authority of Scripture over all of these traditions that you've come up with, over all of the interpretations that your friends in the Pharisaical community of Jews are coming up with. You have to turn your back on that and align that under Scripture, align that under me, is what Jesus is saying. It's difficult, isn't it? It's difficult. When was the last time you've been told you've been doing something wrong for all these years? And you're like, whoa, now I have a decision to make. Either I eat humble pie, and I say, you're right, whoa. Or in pride, I go, my way's better. Right? Receive. It takes humility. Because to receive is to align under the authority of Jesus Christ. No matter what that means. Thirdly, believe. Receive the truth to comprehend, to understand it, to receive the truth, to recognize its genuineness, its truth, its authority, and then to believe the truth. To believe means that the gospel does not just stop at mental comprehension, nor can it stop at an acceptance that what is being said is true. There is a, 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 a third step in this process of understanding the gospel that is needed for salvation. You could say it this way. 
It's not enough to say, okay, I understand that, and that's true. You have to make the step of saying, I understand that, that's true, and that is true for me. That is my truth. I think a lot of the reasons that we have false professions of faith, if I can pause just a minute and take a little bit of a planned rabbit trail, called an excursus, right? Makes us sound like we're not taking a rabbit trail when we actually are. But let's take a little bit of a rabbit trail, okay? Not understand, not grasping the understanding of what the gospel is and then accepting that as truth leads to many false professions. Because who, who, who wants to go to hell, right? Hey, you don't want to go to hell? Pray this prayer. That is a terrible way to share the gospel. In fact, you could even say that's a different gospel, right? No, you have to understand that you are a sinner created in God's image, that you have a problem. You have to understand that Jesus Christ died on the cross for those sins. You have to receive that as the truth and then believe that as your truth. I mean, how quickly do we run to, hey, Jesus died for you? And people are like, what in the world does that even mean? Why did he have to die? Why did he die? Who's Jesus? When friends, when we present this message of the gospel, we have to make sure that when we get to belief, that that person has an understanding of what they're claiming is true and that they can believe that true statement that they understand. And so Jesus says, understand, receive, and then look at verse 12. If I've told you of earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? That in one sense, these three are so interconnected they can't be separated. But in another sense, you can't get to belief without proper understanding and proper acceptance. How can Nicodemus ever understand the theological complexities of deeper theology that they would, that they would debate and try to nuance if he doesn't even believe the very basic truths of regeneration and conversion? This is the foundation upon which our theology is built. Let me show you why. You know, it's funny, as a, um, as a pastor, I get all sorts of questions. I love it when people ask questions because it shows they're thinking and they're reading, so it's really good, right? Um, but sometimes people ask too complicated questions when they don't even understand the very basic nuances of Scripture. Whenever I get my, my hair cut for the first, um, you know, probably five or six times I got my hair cut at the barber, uh, Michelle, who cuts my hair, she, she calls me the preacher, and she would have a list of Bible questions when I'd show up. So while she cut my hair, she would ask me these questions. And most of them were trying to, to parse these nuanced, you know, things in Scripture that it's like, whoa, 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 whoa. How about we get super confident on the very basics of Scripture, right? Let's make sure that we know what everyone should know and agree on before we take steps into that. Why? Because I don't want to talk about those? No, it's kind of fun, and everybody needs at one point in their life, or should if they want to get to that point, to maybe parse out those nuances or whatever. But until you recognize where faith comes from, maybe we shouldn't talk about prophecy, right? Maybe we need to recognize that that. Let's just take an illustration of two different ways in which this fleshes out and affects everything, okay? 
If you begin your Christian life with the understanding that you are basically a good person and all I have to do, all I have to do is whenever I choose, just believe on Jesus and get saved. That sends me down a road that the Galatians went down. It, that all I have to do, okay, fine. Well, when I want to, I'll do this and it's not, it doesn't really have to change my life and I just have kind of this, this feeling inside of me. And that then sends me down the road of a Christian life of more of the same. That I do something to earn God's salvation, right? Whether it's belief or whatever, I do that. And then as I continue to do that, I get more and more favor from God. And so Paul tells the Galatians, let me ask you only this in Galatians chapter 3. Did you receive the spirit of works of the law or by the hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the spirit, are you now perfected in the flesh? Or having begun by God working in you, do you think that you can just make yourself more godly on your own effort? Because if your salvation begins with your effort, your whole Christian life is about your effort. Versus if you go over here and you say, no, we're dead in our trespasses and sins, that in order for us to be saved, God has to breathe life into us that it's all of God. How does that shape your Christian life moving forward? That not only is the life given to you all of God, but that's life that's been given to you by God. Guess what? You can't lose what you didn't earn. That faith that's been infused, that life that's been infused into your soul is a faith that will never end. It will continue. That life will continue on into heaven. And the work of sanctification is a cooperation with you in the scripture, but God changing you. That rather than, than picking yourself up by your bootstraps and just grinning and bearing it and, and getting through the Christian life, you have joy and freedom as God changes you. That just that very basic thing that may not seem like that big of a deal, that salvation has ongoing consequences. And so if we miss this, it's one of the reasons why we're going so slow, is that if we miss this, we miss the foundation Verse 13, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. That's his statement on authority. Not only is this the most foundational truth to believe, this is the statement of authority that Jesus is claiming to be the Son of Man revealed in Daniel chapter 7, who ascends to the Father... And Jesus says, I've come from the Father. I'm going back to the Father. I speak on the Father's behalf. Look at verse 13. Very careful. And everybody look at verse 13. No one has ascended into heaven. Now we can look at that. And his assumption is ascended into heaven and come back down to tell you the truth. He's saying all these people that are making up all this stuff... They didn't come from heaven. I did. I came from heaven and I'm going to ascend back into heaven. He says no one has ascended into heaven and come back. And of course we can think of a couple of, exam a couple of, of you know, exceptions to that. You think of Lazarus. And you think of Paul who was caught up into the third heaven. But you take those two exceptions. They actually prove the rule that those are exceptions. That no one has ascended into heaven. So the next time you're in the Christian bookstore and you see books like 90 Minutes in Heaven or Proof of Heaven or My Time in Heaven... Just leave them on the shelf. Or maybe ask if you can move them to the fantasy fiction section, right? 
Because no one has ascended into heaven. Every one of those books have contrary evidence to what Scripture clearly teaches. And the problem is people don't read their Bible, but they read that foolishness. And they believe it. So who's your authority? Step off my soapbox over here. Okay, verse 14. This is where Jesus has been going the whole time. He's referencing Numbers chapter 21 that we read this morning for our Scripture reading. As... Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. It's an astonishing statement. Again, he doesn't, as he's been referencing the Old Testament in every single um, answer to Nicodemus, here once again he references the Old Testament and he doesn't need to explain it. Nicodemus knows exactly what he's talking about. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, what happened in Numbers chapter 21? The people rebelled against God. They sinned. God sent in uh, snakes. And these, these snakes, these serpents were venomous. And as they bit the people, so those people would would die. We don't know exactly. I mean, there are all sorts of people who, okay, it's this kind of snake. It's that kind of snake. It's it's a fiery serpent. It's a serpent from hell. It's demons. Okay, it was probably just venomous snakes that came in, bit the people. They realized it was from God. And they turn to God for help. And God in his infinite wisdom gives a foreshadowing of Messiah. As Moses lifted up the serpent of the wilderness, God told Moses to make a bronze serpent. And it seems weird until you get to this point and you go, I know why God did that. So that the Old Testament people would recognize that their salvation comes through looking by faith. Moses makes a bronze serpent, puts it on a pole, sets it up, and anyone who's bit, if they look to the serpent, that person is healed. The first truth we must realize is that Numbers 21 is not an allegory. Numbers 21 actually happened. It gives us a true account of the children of Israel in the wilderness. This passage is not an allegory. It's an analogy, and those are very similar, so we're going to call it an illustration. Jesus is using the Old Testament to say, Nicodemus, once again, you missed it. It's all through here. This isn't hidden. This isn't some mystery that you shouldn't understand. This is foundational to your Christian life. Foundational to the kingdom of God. Secondly, we need to understand that Jesus is centering the illustration around the phrase, lifted up. We don't want to fall into the trap of looking at Numbers 21 and looking at verses 14 and 15 and trying to draw every single parallel that we can, right? They were in the wilderness. Nicodemus is in a spiritual wilderness. You know, and go on and on and on. We don't need to do that. Because his purpose is to say, Moses lifted up the serpent and so the Son of Man is going to be lifted up. The key phrase is the phrase lifted up. Lift it up. So let's go through each phrase of this answer quickly. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, that's Numbers 21, look at the next phrase, so must. Friends, Jesus, both his exaltation and his humiliation, we could reverse that in order, his humiliation, his exaltation, were not optional in the plan of redemption. There is no salvation outside of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Must. So must the Son of Man 
revealing himself as the fulfillment of Daniel chapter 7. Lifted up, this word lifted up means both exaltation and lifted up to the cross. That it's got a dual meaning here. It's the first of three times we see this in John. In chapter 8, it says this. They did not understand he'd been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, you will know that I'm he. That I do nothing of my own authority, just as the Father taught me. When the Son of Man is exalted, and then in John chapter 12, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. Verse 33, he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. And so there's a dual meaning here that Jesus, through the humiliation of his death and the exaltation... Because of his humility, Philippians chapter 2, therefore he was exalted and given a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, and that everyone should confess that Jesus is Lord, Master. That's the name bestowed on him, both exalted and lifted up, that whoever... This is Jesus inserting a mind-blowing truth to Nicodemus. And here's what this whoever means. It means... That you don't have to be a part of Israel. Nicodemus, we're Israel. We are the kingdom of God. Jesus says, without the new birth, you can't even see the kingdom of God. And then he drops this atomic bomb that whoever. Salvation is made available to the world without distinction of nationality. Whoever believes... This is parallel to the looking to the bronze serpent. The focus here is on the object. Faith had to be in the bronze serpent for healing, so faith needs to be in the person and work of Jesus Christ for salvation. How much faith? Perhaps there was, on that fateful day in Numbers chapter 21, a young boy or girl who was so thankful for the bronze serpent. For he or she knew that if they were ever bitten, all they had to do was look. And when that bite came, there was confidence, excitement even, to turn to that bronze serpent and to know with confidence that they would be okay. And perhaps on the other side of the encampment, there's one filled with fear and worry. Does it work? How can it work? It's a bronze serpent. It's on a stick. They get bit and they start freaking out. Worrying. Anxiety. They try to dress the wound and it only gets worse. And they try everything they know and it only gets worse and they get sick. And in that last moment, with fear, trepidation, they look to the serpent. Who's rescued? Both. For it's only faith, friend. You may be here this morning and you tend more on the sensitive side in your conscience and in your emotions. And there are days when you wonder if your faith is enough. Friends, faith saves. The size of a mustard seed can move mountains. And so all Jesus says is, look, 
and those who look. Look to Jesus. Receive eternal life. This is the first of 15 references in John to this life. We'll come on it over and over and over again as it references both our union with God through salvation and our communion with God. Life here on this earth and in the earth to come, in the life to come. Nicodemus had to realize that he was in need of looking. That even though he was the teacher in Israel, he needed to believe. That he was inside the nation, but outside of the kingdom. In England, on January 6th, 1850, a 15-year-old boy was grudgingly supposed to join his father at church that Sunday morning. I know that never happens in our families at community, but back in 1850 it did. The church was nine miles from his home. They had to walk. He was going to meet his dad there on that Sunday. There was a severe snowstorm that hit. So rather than walking the nine miles to his father's church, the teenager a little bit of a way there, ducked into a Methodist chapel on Artillery Street, right there close to his home. The snowstorm was so bad that in that small Methodist chapel, the pastor couldn't even make it to the church gathering that day, and there were only a few people there. Records would say eight to twelve people. Because the pastor was gone, a layman got up and read the text. No singing. And here's the text he read. Isaiah 45, 22, turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is no other. And so this layman, this unlearned Englishman, later written about, in, he said he used common and unlearned English, mispronouncing words both from Scripture and from common vernacular, invited the hearers to look to Jesus. Here's part of his sermon as it was recorded this common layman says this is a very simple text indeed it says look i'm going to read it exactly as it was recorded now look and don't take a deal of pain it ain't lifting your foot or finger it's just look well a man needn't go to college to learn to look you may be the biggest fool and yet you can look a man needn't be worth a thousand dollars a year to look anybody can look even a child can look And so Jesus Christ says, look unto me. Some of you may say, well, wait for the Spirit's working. You have no business with that. Just look to Christ. The text says, look to me. Look to me. I'm sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me. I'm hanging on the cross. Look unto me. I'm dead and buried. Look unto me. I rise again. Look unto me. I ascend to heaven. Look unto me. I'm sitting at the Father's right hand. Oh, poor sinner. Look unto me. There As I said, we're very few people there that day, and so it was at this point in his sermon that this layman pointed his finger right at that teenager. Imagine being in the room that day. And he says, young man, you look very miserable. You'll always be miserable. Miserable in life, miserable in death, if you don't obey my text, but if you obey it now, this moment, you'll be saved. Young man, look to Jesus. You have nothing to do but to look and live. 
That 15-year-old boy was a boy by the name of Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who would later go on to be known as the Prince of Preachers. One of the greatest expository preachers in church history, certainly the greatest of the 19th century. And it was on that day in that small chapel that God reserved that spot just for him. And a normal person like you and like me got up with a verse of scripture and told everyone in that congregation to do what Jesus told Nicodemus to do. Look and live. You say, Pastor Joe, how how can we synchronize this? I mean, if I feel like I'm if I tell people to turn to Jesus, is that stepping beyond what I'm supposed to do because I believe so much in the sovereignty of God? No. Because God's chosen to use somehow the proclamation of the truth to save people. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, for since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. The Jews demand signs and Greek seeks wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. When you get a hold of this concept, it's the most amazing thing in the world because you witness with passion but without pressure. You share the truth of the gospel recognizing that it's our responsibility to believe the truth through the power of the Holy Spirit. And as believers, it's our responsibility to speak the truth, but it's God's responsibility to save. And so we passionately say, look to Jesus with no pressure of having to convince someone to do so. But rather, to to give, as Jesus shows us, the clear teachings of Scripture. And to recognize that God is in the business of saving All who come. If you want to know more about that word, whoever, that bomb that's dropped in Nicodemus' lap, so much so that I don't think he speaks the rest of the chapter, come back next week as we see God demonstrating his love, not just to the Jewish people, but to the entire world, so that all who believe in him will be saved. Heavenly Father, thank you for the truth of Scripture. We thank you for the way in which it is so clear that we may understand, receive, and believe. Thank you that your mercy is far greater than all of our sin. Thank you for your faithfulness that when we confess and forsake, you're faithful to forgive. Thank you that you're a refuge of our weary soul. Thank you that when we come in faith, we find the great exchange of our sin for your righteousness. And so we praise you, the God from whom all blessings flow. Friend, with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, let's spend a brief moment in response and reflecting on what God has revealed this morning through the preaching of the word. Whatever you're thinking about now and and your conscience being pricked through the Holy Spirit is what God wants you to be thinking about. So would you spend a moment responding to that truth, reflecting on what you've heard and worshiping through private prayer?